Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where normally we assign homework and try to make it a little bit more fun than it was to do in high school. I am your co-host, Pete Romberg, and once again, we are in the middle of our, uh, our I guess, season hiatus. Uh, this is the second of our three book report episodes, as Martha and I take a short break to get some guests in line, get some topics in line, and some homework all squared away, so that we can come back in the beginning of October, back to our regularly scheduled program. So, like we did on the last episode, we're going to be doing a couple short book report uh, for you, book reports for you today. Um, these are just things that Martha and I recorded independently about whatever pop culture we are currently consuming and enjoying or just simply want to be talking about. Uh, there will be one more of these uh, book report episodes in three weeks, followed uh, the very next week by our first return episode where we will be talking about the Steve James documentary, America to Me, which happens to be about the high school that Martha and I went to. So that's something to look forward to down the pipe, but for now, Enjoy these short little book reports. Hello, listeners. Let us talk for a moment about the Academy Awards. As longtime listeners, I say long loosely, we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half, which is only long by certain uh, values of that word. Uh, but as listeners to this podcast may know, I am a big fan of the Academy Awards. I have been watching the whole telecast for... Mm, Almost 14 years now, I believe. Uh, I started watching after Fellowship of the Ring had its uh, moment in the sun. Whoopi Goldberg hosted that. It was a delightful show. Uh, I watched the whole thing start to finish. I watched the red carpet. I get invested. Um, the last couple of years, my family and I have gone to AMC's marathon of the Best Picture nominees. It is, all in all, one of my favorite TV events of the year, and I say all of that understanding that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science... Uh, scientists? No. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is full of BS, is old, too old, too white, uh, and too out of touch to really be a benchmark for the actual, like, pinnacle of cinematic achievement. Do I think they're getting better? Yes. This is in micro baby steps. Like, they're so small, I don't even want to call them baby steps. But they are trying. However, recently, they announced the addition of an award called the Academy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Popular Film. This is a terrible idea. In the press release, they said eligible require, eligibility requirements and other key details will be forthcoming, but let's be real. This is an award that they have invented so that they don't have to pay attention to movies that they don't consider to be Oscar caliber. This goes back to my thesis statement of this podcast that the calendar for film release is nonsense. Uh, this was, there were a lot of people on Twitter claiming that this was a lot of hoops for the Academy to go through to not nominate Black Panther for Best Picture, and guys, that's exactly what this is. Uh, the Academy has made some motions to nominate films like Black Panther, or in the same vein, I guess, Get Out, Mad Max, like, 
genre film um, that doesn't fall into the normal kind of bracket of what an Oscar film is. Uh, but we have never really like we have never really seriously thought that any of those films might win. Also, frequently, Best Picture nominees are also hugely popular. They just happen to be hugely popular in a way that the Academy understands. Such as James Cameron's Avatar, which was, for a long time, the most profitable movie ever made. Uh, so I'm not really sure what this category is meant to do, uh, except be part of their longtime crusade to draw in a larger, younger audience, I think, which, guys, at this point, your audience is who it is. I I don't think shortening the telecast, I don't think adding this award, um, they also announced that they will be handing out more awards on commercial breaks, which is also just a terrible idea. I mean, it is what it is. It's a beast, it's a monster, it, it goes too long, but it those of us that are going to watch are going to watch regardless. Um, and I don't think doing anything like this is actually going to inspire new people to start watching the event. All this does is make the Academy look even more out of touch by pulling what I think could fairly be called publicity stunts uh, in order to increase their viewership. Um, but yeah, this this award really just feels like an excuse to give themselves... Um, so that they don't have to pay attention to Marvel movies or big action movies or genre movies. And all of these have at one point, well, maybe not Marvel movies, but like big budget genre films have been recognized in a best picture fashion. Um, and I, I almost feel like adding this award means that that won't happen anymore. Uh, the Wikipedia article notes that this is the first new category announced by the Academy since Best Animated Feature Film, which was added in 2001. Um, I don't know that that was a bad choice because animated film is frequently deserving of recognition in a different way than live action. But also having that category means that movies like WALL-E, which were nominated for both, th there was no way that WALL-E was going to win Best Picture, even though it was the best movie that I saw that year. Uh, it adding a category like this takes movies out of the running for Best Picture that I don't think is going to be utilized in a fair or measured way. I think that all this is going to do is it, it's going to be it's going to be a consolation prize to movies that are deserving of recognition, but we're never going to get it because of how outdated and stodgy the Academy is. Uh, so those are my thoughts on the category. I'm actually interested at this point to see if they go forward with uh, actually adding that. I think there's some chance that the backlash to this will be sufficient that they'll scrap this award anyway, which I wouldn't be sad about. Uh, and also I'm going to add my voice to the uh, denizens of the internet who think that if you're going to add an award to the Oscars, add one for stunt people. They are legitimately doing work. They don't get recognized. And frequently that lack of recognition leads to incredibly dangerous working environments. So give them the prestige that they earn. Many films, many, many films, not just action movies, not just comic book movies, many movies utilize stunt people and 
I think that they, just as much as any of the actor or tech awards, I think that uh, stunt people deserve to be recognized for their work as well. Uh, this has been my TED Talk on the failures of the Academy of Motion Pictures of Arts and Sciences, which I am sure we will revisit uh, around Oscar season. Uh, thank you and good night. All right, so I am finishing a book called Conquerors, How Portugal Forged the First Global Empire by Roger Crowley. Um, it's a really, really fascinating uh, history book, uh, kind of in that realm of pop history, where it is a well-written and thoroughly researched piece of history by a historian written for a mass audience. Um, you know, you go to any normal bookstore, and that's what's going to be on the shelves of the history section. Um, it's about a topic that I knew almost nothing about before I started reading it. I got turned on to it through listening to an interview of the author um, in another podcast, and it seemed interesting because I didn't know anything about it. Uh, basically, this is Portugal and the Age of Discovery. Um, Henry the Navigator might be a name that you're dusting off the top of your head from, like, high school history. Uh, Vasco da Gama, uh, a guy who rounded the um, Cape of Good Hope for the first time, first European to do so, at least. Um, it's that kind of era. And it's all about the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean. It's a really interesting story because you, like... My, my memory of this, both uh, when I was a student myself and then teaching middle school Age of Discovery, which was like, you know, two pages, one day, moving on type situation, uh, was very quick, very cursory. You learn Vasco da Gama, you learn, you know, Columbus, you learn um, the name Henry the Navigator and, and uh, Magellan who circumnavigates the globe and everything else. And then that's kind of about it. You don't really look at the impact of these Europeans into the Indian Ocean and into the flourishing trade network that already existed. And it turns out, brace yourselves, these guys were basically insane war criminals. Uh, this is basically the plot of an alien invasion movie where the Europeans, the Portuguese, are the aliens who are coming in and destroying everything in sight. Um, and because it's, it's the Indian Ocean, you don't have the disease impact that you did with the New World. This is instead just an entirely different worldview than the worldview that existed at the time. Uh, before the Portuguese showed up, the Indian Ocean was basically an enormous free trade zone where Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists were able to cohabitate and, uh, very successfully. Uh, everyone got rich off this trade. There was piracy, of course, but that was uh, pirates were more often in, like interested in basically just getting ransoms from the ships that they captured. So think of it as just a terrible tax system. Um, and then each individual port would have taxes and everything as you as merchants went in and out. But it was a a globalized network and society. Very, it, it, you know, it's very dangerous to be reductive and compare something that happened 500 years ago to today. But reading it, I could see a lot of parallels to the modern world. And then you have the Portuguese come in, wild-eyed crusaders, basically, who want to kill all the Muslims and uh, make the entire area their own. They have no idea anything about the uh, the people living there. When they first showed up, they didn't know Muslims existed, or uh, uh, Hindus existed, and they thought they were just a, a sect of Christian. Um, they very quickly learned and adapted to their environment, and uh, their overwhelming firepower advantage was able to allow them to 
uh, effectively soft power and hard power conquer this entire region so that for a couple hundred years the Portuguese were the European link to the spice trade before the Dutch um, showed up and then after them the British. But this is the beginning of European colonization of uh, Southeast Asia. Fascinating book about a topic I knew nothing about, so I wanted to shout it out for that reason. Um, I've torn through it very quickly. But I also want to use this to talk about history in general. Um, we haven't assigned any actual history books thus far, partly because they tend to take a long time to read, um, and partly because I'm well aware that this is more my bag than Martha's. But, uh, you know, we think of history as sort of an academic thing. You know, we're not talking about it in terms of pop culture. But there is a lot of to be said for pop history or for just popular history. Um, this goes back, you know, especially to uh, Barbara Tuckman with The Guns of August and A Distant Mirror. Um, you know, Guns of August famously was read by Kennedy's whole staff. Uh, he, he sort of made them all read it. And, um, you know, it actually goes even further back to, to uh, Gibbon and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, seeing as that's 1776, we're not going to go that far back. But... Having a good background in history is very useful for then coming in and assessing, uh, especially like pop culture, like sci-fi fantasy works. Um, I was just listening to an interview uh, between N.K. Jemisin, who wrote the Shattered Earth trilogy, um, with Ezra Klein, and they were sort of doing a world-building exercise. And it was fascinating sort of hearing N.K. Jemisin be able to like take an idea and then flesh it out to its logical extent to be able to say, okay, if these people live on the edge of the desert, what does that mean for their society? What does that mean for their history? What does that mean for their um, relations with other communities around them? Uh, and she's taking a lot of that knowledge base from a deep knowledge of just reading history books for fun. Um, so, you know, if you're someone who is, we've talked about uh, playing RPGs before, various role-playing games, uh, or even just looking at science fiction and fantasy and other kinds of pop culture, having a good grounded historical background is really useful to be able to come at these things from different directions, to be able to say, uh, like, oh, this thing in uh, Mass Effect is similar to this actual real-life event. Maybe that's where they got it from. Maybe it would come about differently. Um, or, you know, if, again, if you're world-building for a role-playing game, um, to be able to think about, like, okay, what are the actual repercussions if this is a feudal society with a strong religious aspect uh, of a, a single dominant, like, church religion, like medieval Europe might have been. Um, and, and you can decide to not go the same way that history went, but at least you have that background behind you of saying, this is how history went, so we know this is one way to do it. What if we tweak this? What if we tweak that? What are the long-term repercussions there? Um, plus, you know, I'm someone who loves history. This is probably not surprising to you guys. So, uh, I'm just out there plugging, reading history books in general, uh, especially very well written and accessible ones for pleasure and for knowledge. Um, but then also for sort of, uh, bigger pop culture analysis. Hello listeners, and welcome to my next round of book reports. Uh, today I would like to tell you about a wonderful movie that I just recently watched on Netflix called To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Now, I feel like you have probably heard of this movie, uh, if you exist on the internet at all. Uh, it is a delightful teen rom-com starring Lana Condor as Lara Jean, 
Uh, it is based off a book by Jenny Han, and basically the premise is that Lara Jean, um, in order to get her feelings sorted through uh, without causing too much drama in her own personal life, has written a letter uh, to every boy that she has been in love with. Uh, there are five total letters, and through... Uh, I'm not sure if it is a, a malicious little sister act or something that her little sister does because she honestly thinks it would be good for Lara Jean. Um, but basically, her little sister ends up sending all of these letters. So all of these boys get a letter from Lara Jean. Uh, shenanigans ensue. I don't want to tell you too much about the movie. Uh, she ends up fake dating one of them uh, in order to... Uh, I guess in order to head off the attentions of another one who is her sister's ex-boyfriend. And there's just there's a lot of kind of Shakespearean comedic uh, misdirection and pretending to be in love until we're actually in love. And it's all very sweet and cute. Uh, and watching it, I was reminded very strongly of Love, Simon, another teen rom-com that I saw earlier in the year, which I also adored. I don't remember if I talked about Love, Simon on the podcast, but just in case I did not, uh, Love, Simon is about a uh, gay high school boy who is not out at his school yet, um, but he is out to an anonymous pen pal that he is writing to on the internet um, because he really likes having somebody to talk to who he understands and who understands him. Uh, and he leaves his Gmail account open one day on one of the school computers and another student sees it and he ends up blackmailing Simon for helping his wingman. And again, this is another very cute, very kind of like this is another very cute teen uh, romantic comedy that I highly recommend. Um, but the reason that I want to talk about both of these movies, both Love, Simon and To All the Boys I've Loved Before is because, first of all, if this, if they are heralding the return of the straightforward, non-deconstructed, non-cynical teen rom-com, I am 100% here for that. I could go my entire life and never see another, like, sex road trip or teen sex romp and be totally okay with that. Um, they're both very sweet. They, uh, quote-unquote action in them, never gets beyond some making out. Uh, they are wonderful. Um, but also, because both of the protagonists in these movies are left of who you would normally expect to see as the kind of romantic lead in a rom-com. Uh, in Love, Simon, Simon is gay. Uh, he's white and cisgendered, but he is gay. Uh, and the his supporting cast of characters is incredibly diverse. And in To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Lara Jean is Korean-American. And for both of these characters, what makes them, um, you know, not, you know, the, these things about them, like Simon being gay and Lara Jean being Korean, are not only important to the plots of the story, but they're important to the characters. Um, particularly for Lara Jean, one of the things that she struggles with uh, in the movie is the fact that She's not used to being the main character in this kind of story. She has a lot of trouble believing that anyone would be interested in her because she's not the hero. She is the uh, cute, sassy sidekick. Um, 
and she ends up pushing away a lot of the attention uh, that is directed at her because she doesn't think that she deserves it or she thinks it's a mistake or she thinks that the people giving it to her will eventually regret doing it. So having her deal with that ends up being a very big part of that story. Uh, and obviously, Love, Simon is a little bit more straightforward in terms of um, like what to... He's not really grappling with a cultural difference uh, in his movie, but he is dealing with the fact that he can't be open about the people that he is attracted to or the people that he has crushes on. Um, I am deeply appreciative of the fact that both of these are movies for and about teenagers. I am, you, you all know that I am totally here both for representation and for treating teens kindly. Um, and I feel very strongly that if this is the direction that teen movies, like realistic, uh, realistic fiction type teen movies are headed in, uh, there's some real good stuff to be made here. Um, to All the Boys I've Loved Before is the first in a series of, I believe, three books. I almost wish it was a TV series because the actors are so cute and wonderful that I would watch a hundred hours of them. Um, but I will start by hoping that they make uh, sequels for uh, the other two books. Uh, it's on Netflix right now. I think Love, Simon just came out on DVD. Check them out. All right. I want to talk about Slice. Uh, Slice is the Chance the Rapper starring Austin Vesley directed movie about um, pizza delivery drivers getting murdered, werewolves, ghost towns, and uh, it's a lot of crazy zany fun. Um, it just got released on Monday, September the 10th, so two days ago from when this episode dropped, and it's now available on streaming uh, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you're going to go buy your streamings, that's where you can go get it. Um, it was a lot of fun. I saw it uh, as part of a, a premiere where they premiered it uh, simultaneously in 20 different cities and then um, had a live sort of Q&A cast session uh, that they broadcast from Chicago to all the theaters that they were live premiering it at. Um, vague spoilers to follow, so if you want to go into this thing totally blind... Uh, feel free to skip ahead of this section and go to the next uh, thing that we end up talking about for this book report. All right, with that out of the, out of the way, um, set in a world where there uh, we have a town, Chris Parnell is the mayor, 40,000 ghosts also live in this town following uh, a terrible haunting because of a, a, at a sanatorium. The sanatorium was torn down and replaced with a shopping mall, like a, a strip mall, and Chris Parnell has moved all the ghosts into a neighboring town across the river called Ghost Town. Um, now, however, some pizza delivery drivers are getting murdered. Uh, these pizza delivery drivers happen to be operating out of a pizza shop owned by Paul Shear, uh, located in the strip mall where the sanatorium used to be. If you think there might be a connection, you've seen horror movies before. Um, everyone blames it on the werewolf, Dax Lycander, who they blamed on a string of related murders a couple decades before. Uh, the werewolf is played by Chance the Rapper. Also in this movie, in addition to uh, Chance and Paul Shear, are Zazie Beetz, approximately five seconds of Hannibal Burris, uh, Joe Curie, whom you know as Steve from Stranger Things, along with his hair, um... 
and a handful of other people. Uh, Ray Gray plays an intrepid reporter uh, trying to get to the bottom of it all, and we have a pair of hard-boiled cops. Uh, there's also a witch coven and uh, a portal to hell. So it's an absolute genre pastiche, kind of a throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Rapid fire, 83 minutes. Even then it felt a little bit like a TV show in the sense that uh, there were sort of breaks where it cut to black and that was sort of like the end of Act 1, end of Act 2. Could easily be a commercial break. Lots of things I could poke holes at this with. Um, it lagged at times. The story didn't always make sense. The actors were of... I, I should say that they some actors knew exactly what movie they were in and others slightly less so. Um... However, this was a movie all about style. Um, I think there were at least three different montages of just cool stuff happening, people looking cool as they were doing things. Um, great sort of, especially October, afternoon, evening, turn your brain off and have fun with a horror comedy uh, where you don't have to think too hard and you want to look at some really cool pictures on the screen. Uh, oddly enough, it was composed by the same guy who composed the Black Panther soundtrack, and man, the music was phenomenal. Um, the colors were great, the costuming was fantastic, deeply saturated, deeply indebted to those 70s and 80s sort of, like, schlocky B-movies. It's definitely got that vibe. Um, to give an example, the ghosts are just people wearing, like, powdered pancake makeup, so they're just, like, in white face paint. Um, but it works, because as soon as you see that that's what the ghosts are, you're like, oh, I know what kind of movie this is, and then it is, and you have fun for 80 minutes. Um, this is sort of more a prelude to our eventual Halloween episode, which is coming up in approximately a month and a half. Uh, but I wanted to talk about it, A, because, you know, as a good Chicagoan, I gotta support everything that, uh, Chance and, and Austin, uh, Vesley are doing. Um, but on top of that, there's a place for just schlocky, stupid fun. Um, so often it's like, some of the, the discussion around this so far has been that there's been a, a long delay in its release. A24, which is the sort of like the gold standard for horror movies, um, production at least and distribution picked it up, but then didn't do a normal release. People are concerned. It's like, well, it's not like The Witch. It's not like uh, Get Out or The Babadook. And that's because it's an entirely different kind of movie. It belongs on streaming. It belongs on Netflix. Um, because it's not going to be a critical darling. It's not trying to say anything special or important. It's not trying to scare you. It's just trying to sort of, like, have fun with a truly ridiculous concept. Um, and, and entertain you for 80 minutes. So... I just, you know, I, I want to shout out this specifically, but I also want to shout out entertainment that is designed for that. Um, often, I'm somebody who might be a little bit more of a curmudgeon when it comes to just guilty pleasures, but there is definitely the place for the guilty pleasure, for the thing that isn't so bad it's good, and isn't good, it's just it knows exactly what it is, and, well, what that is is not going to win any awards anytime soon. It is leaning 100% into itself and is fun to be along the, the ride for. That does kind of seem like a theme for this podcast. I know Martha also agrees frequently with the idea that, um, you know, you should sort of, like, look at the art for what it is rather than for, like, comparing it to, uh, you know, the afi top 100 sort of films it's like if that's not the kind of movie it is don't compare it to movies like that uh treat them treat whatever the pop culture is you're looking at as it comes and don't be afraid to have fun with whatever it is that you're consuming so uh there we go
check out Slice, available on streaming. And that's all the time we have for this week. Please join us next episode when we are going to do our third and final book report episode. That's going to be followed on August 3rd by our first return episode of our uh, season two, let's call it, uh, possibly next school year. That's a good term for it as well, um, where we're going to be talking about America to Me, the documentary by Steve James about Oak Park River Forest High School, Martha and Mai's alma mater, uh, uh, which digs deeply into the um, racial achievement gap at this uh, otherwise very diverse and somewhat prestigious public high school in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, it's getting incredibly rave reviews, and you can watch it right now on Stars. Uh, it premieres uh, every Sunday. It's a 10-part series. Each part is an hour, so uh, we're going to be getting into it near the end of its run, but not all the way finished with it. Uh, we'll have more information about that at the end of next episode. Just wanted to sort of get you thinking about it now so that if you did want to start tuning in, you could watch it week to week. All right. So you can find us on Apple Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere else fine podcasts are found. You've clearly already found it, so good on you. However, go ahead and tell one of your friends, get them to find it somehow, possibly a scavenger hunt. While you're there, please rate and review us. That's how more people find out about the show, in addition to your word of mouth. You can find us on our home at the on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. You can Facebook us. Uh, just go to Did You Do Your Homework Podcast on Facebook. Search and you'll find us. Or you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. We're taking suggestions for topics for homeworks. And if you want to be a guest in our upcoming season two slash new school year, drop us a line. Happy to have you. You can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. And you can find Martha on the internet at Magical Martha. Next episode, once again, is our final book report episode. So tune in in two weeks, as usual, uh, to listen to that. Class dismissed. <laughs>